Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're going through the entire Sermon on the Mount, but we're in the Beatitudes right now. And a matter of fact, we're on the sixth Beatitude or Macarism uh, that I technically have been referring to them as Macarism from the Greek Makar. And, uh, you know, I'm going to suggest that at the end of, of this, that Jesus is going to be unpacking this one, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, for the rest of the larger Sermon on the Mount. This one is very important, and um, often we misinterpret this, right? So you'll see, and hopefully uh, we'll all be in agreement, right? All right. So here's my interpretation. Blessed or enviable are the pure in heart, katharos te cardia in the Greek, that is the exact phrase in the Septuagint rendering of Psalm 24.4. So, I, look, I don't think anybody doubts that Jesus had this psalm in mind as he says this verse. I mean, he's not uh, stealing from it. He wrote both of them, right? So, Psalm 24.3. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? I mean, very interesting. He's on a hill right? And uh, everyone else is a little bit lower down on the hill. So, I mean, I think the metaphor is fantastic. So, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive a blessing. And this is Baruchah, um, not Ashrei, but Baruchah from the Lord. And vindication, that's the word righteousness. We'll talk about that from God as Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob, Selah. All right, look, this is the question in the mind of the Jews. What do I need to do? What do I need to be in order to earn God's favor again, to get it, to feel it, to feel like God and I are good, that I'm right with God, righteous? What is the quid pro quo so that God would legally have to bless me, that he would bless me, right? Verse 5, I don't mean this in an evil way you know, leveraging, manipulating, blackmailing. I'm hurting. I've fallen down in society. I feel this distance from God, like I've been a disappointment to God. I've messed up. I've lost face. I believe if I see God face to face that that he would be disgusted with me or, or ignore me or be angry at me or Jesus. So I need a fix today. I need, if, if there's a savior, if there's a rescuer, I need that. So what do I need to do? Isn't that legit? You know, so I can bring a sacrifice, I can tithe to the poor, I can come to all three annual celebrations if I'm a first century Jew, pre-temple. But is that enough? Because I've been doing that and it hasn't been working. So Jesus is not only raising the question that's on the people's minds and the religious scholars' minds as they dialogue, but he's got a different answer than is typically kicked out there. And this is very, very, very good news to all of us. So who is righteous enough, pure enough, good enough, uh, so that they can enter the temple of God, uh, right, ascend the hill of the Lord, and make a face-to-face -face supplication to him, the right of sons and daughters in good standing, right? They are right. And he would look at them and say that they were worthy of being heard officially and would grant their request with a blessing and righteousness, sadiqah. Vindication is a, a poor translation, I think, in the Old Testament. So the blessing in verse 5 is a barukah. So some act of God where God intervenes, a miracle where sickness is relieved or childlessness is relieved, meaning they have a child, 
uh, crops are blessed, business herds, safety, health issues, uh, injustices repaired. Think Job, right? And that makes them, when God baruchs, barukahs, they become enviable because they have a story. I mean, think Lazarus, right? Raised from the dead, barukah. I mean, make, made him, you know, a little bit different. He was uh, would have been on the page of people, the front page of people. And this barukah makes them feel right with God and publicly look like they're worthy servants. That's what the psalmist wants, meaning the psalmist wasn't feeling that. Or he's writing to a congregation that aren't feeling that. I mean, that makes sense, right? Think the Jews who are in exile or who've come back from exile and still feel like they've been orphaned. They want to seek God's face, and not an angry face, but a face smiling upon them. They want to be able to stand before God without shame, without guilt or fear of judgment. They want to feel like they're at home with their father. They want things to be right with God. They want to see God smiling and dancing over them. Me too, right? Who doesn't ask this question periodically or regularly? Now, to go officially into God's face is the idiom lipne Elohim or lipne Yahweh or variations on the theme in the Hebrew. It was used for the desire of the Jews to come to the temple for the three holy celebrations, to do business with God, to ask for justice for some injustice or crime against them, and to hopefully feel God's face smiling on them. The, the favor of God, God blessing them, protecting them, having their back, multiplying them, being their uh, kinsman redeemer, being their uh, provider, and, and forgiving their shortcomings, forgiving them, and giving them justice for injustices, right? This is what you do when you're in the presence of God. Again, think Job. It's a great uh, imagining of this. It can refer to, humanly speaking, the coming before a king at court. Uh, in Genesis 43, Judah tells Judah tells Joseph's brothers that unless they do what Judas, uh, Joseph says, they will not see his face again, meaning appear before him officially. They won't be able to appear before Judah. And even being in the service of the king, uh, 2 Kings 25, uh, before the king is an idiom for kingly advisors, those people who are before the king. So, uh, and listen to Psalm 80, verse 3. Restore us, O God, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. And don't think salvation as we refer to it today or conceive of it today. Think this relationship is restored. Uh, God and I were on the outs. God, I need, I need your face to shine upon me. That's the power. You're the invite. And when I feel that and sense that, I feel like we're good. I'm saved, if you will. So there is a sense with God that a rescue needs to take place. People away from the temple, away from the promise of God and, and the experience of the pleasure of God, they mess up, they screw up, they don't take advantage of opportunities, they're not merciful, they're not hospitable, whatever, and they feel dirty. They feel like God, they're a disappointment to God, right? We, we got to connect with this, right? Uh, tell me I'm not the only one hanging out there. <laughs> I know that because of what Jesus did, uh, I have the favor of God, but I don't always feel it. And as I've said before, I don't wake up in the morning feeling it. Um, I ask God for power to make me feel it almost every day. And, and by the way, more than once a day. So there's a sense that that the, the psalmist is talking about a rescue, a change, something that God needs to do to intervene. The people had sinned, they'd fallen short, they feel isolated from God, they feel like they're not enough, and uh, and like I said, lonely. 
They're feeling shame and guilt. They're critical and our voice is hammering them. They fear God's wrath because, I mean, after what they did, they'd be angry. They'd be angry. So why wouldn't God be angry? They're afraid of his righteous wrath. So they're anxious and afraid that if and when they see God face to face, he's going to be angry or disappointed or just turn away or hide his face. It's horrible. And you can think of the shame and the celestial loneliness, right? The people of God feeling that. So they come to plead for repair of the relationship that can only come from God because no one is righteous. No, not one. So there is no one worthy of climbing the, the hill, or entering the temple, entering the Holy of Holies. No one. That's Old Testament and New Testament. So God must forgive, God must restore, God must rescue, God must bless those who are not worthy of being blessed. It has to come from God. He initiates the repair. So they come unenviable, and they want to leave enviable in their relationship with God, right? Does that sound familiar? This is how we've been in uh, translating the Sermon on the Mount. So what does it take to become right with God, to see his face, to make him cause his face to shine upon, smile joyfully, dance upon them? That's the question. So the ideal is to be in that space just in front of God's face, right up in his grill in modern language, where you can see his eyes upon you, see how he feels about you. And, and ideally, it's, it looks good. You can relax and feel loved by God because you and he are right. So something has happened. It wasn't you because there is no one righteous, but something happened and you are put in a right situation, not by your doing. So he looks at you and he's pleased that you're there. There's no wrath or, or anger or disappointment, just joy. He is so pleased that you're there. He could say over you, well done, good and faithful servant. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased, right? Well, what great news is it that that's even a possibility? And you who have long since believed that you screwed up your relationship with God, you've left the church, you've left the faith, maybe. Uh, look, here's, here's what I will tell you. Oh, contraire, mon frere. If, if you had a relationship with God, if you are a child of God, a follower of Jesus, you're still in. And he is a God who rescues and reconciles failures and sinners with him all the time. This is partly what Jesus came to to uh, purchase. Not just one reconciliation, but an experiential reconciliation over and over. So what's the answer? Who's worthy? Um, and the psalmist says, those who have a clean hand and pure heart. Well, like I said, that's a bummer because clean hands likely refers to doing things uh, according to the Torah, righteously. And this is your actions, right? So doing things right. But Look, I don't even know you, but I, I know people like you. You're like me. You have shown by your deeds that um, you've been unfaithful, right? But clean hands says that you, they can see by your deeds that you actually love God and love others because that's what you do. Nothing less than that. Meaning you haven't sinned in your actions. Well, come on. There's only been one person ever who has never sinned in their actions. Not once. And that would be Jesus. All the rest of us have fallen short and will fall short and fall short today. None of us have clean hands. So the hope was that sacrifices and prayers, tithing, mikvah cleansing, baths would eradicate some of the dirt on your hands, right? Um, some. Hebrews 10, though, tells us, looking back, probably post-temple destruction, that it didn't work. Here's 10.1. 
The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. And by the way, when you see sins in this context, think guilt and shame as well. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins and, and shame and guilt because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins and think guilt and shame and judgment, fear of judgment. Yuck. But it gets even worse. Do you recall when we spoke about righteousness a few podcasts back that there theoretically could be someone, uh, theoretically, it's a unicorn, but let's imagine this, someone who had never done wrong according to the, the law of the region. They've never broken a law, never gone over the speed limit, not even a parking ticket. I mean, not that they did get caught, they didn't do it. Uh, they did the law, required tithing, offerings. They didn't murder, didn't abuse anyone. They were righteous in a limited legal sense. So think if anyone could make a case that they had a clean hands, it would be this person. So think of the rich young ruler who, who came up to Jesus. But in the broad sense of the word dikaio or dikaio sune, they were still unrighteous in God's eyes because their heart wasn't pure. They didn't have a pure heart. They were likely doing right things in order to leverage God, to look good, to build their reputation, or because they were afraid of the law, or the king, or the God's wrath, or their family's wrath or shaming. So in in Psalm 24 terminology, they didn't have a pure heart. They had actions that looked righteous, but they didn't have the right motivation. A pure heart loves God and loves others. And it's, it's the highest calling and motivation. And this gets back to the rich young ruler. He was exposed. How much did he really love God? Well, honestly, the motivation was pathetic because he chose to not follow or honor his son. Not really. There was so little love for God in his heart. But at a certain sense, tragically, that is what he knew was missing. Because he was asking, how can I enter the kingdom of heaven? That's an idiom. How can I know, really know that God loves me as a beloved son with whom he is well pleased? What do I need to do, is what he's asking. And the idea is that he didn't feel that. It's the right question. Pretty clean hands. He just didn't have a pure heart. The psalmist expands on this. It's the one who, quote, does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. There it is. There's a summary of sin. Someone defines sin as looking for significance, security, belonging, anywhere else other than God and in his arms. Any other idol? You know, that would include good idols such as job, family, relationships, sexual identities, compliments, uh, uh, luck, fate, church, gossip, being a busybody, religion, church, you get the idea, likes on social media, amount of money or wealth or retirement account, uh, job growth, uh, employment, um, bonuses, rewards. We sin all the time, every day. We look for our significance and security belonging in a lot of those things every day. We're addicts. And each one of these, apart from the embrace of God, are idolatrous mechanisms. 
and they deliver to us, our brain, our drug of choice, which is dopamine. They're dopamine hits. They're addictive. That's the problem with idolatry. It's addictive. We get hits when someone says, at a boy or at a girl, or you get 10,000 likes, or you become the source of that juicy tidbit that you can spread to that other person and get those hits, or that cute boy or girl notices you. These are powerful, addictive hits. Because we as sin-prone people look for our significant security and belonging in so many other really often good things. That's the subtlety of it. Anything to free us from the terrifying aloneness of human existence sometimes, even temporarily. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He found his significant security and belonging in his identity and relationship with his father. He rested in that. That's what shaped him. He didn't need to find any other dopamine hit. He was getting dopamine hits from God. And honestly, it sounds so foreign to me, but that's why I needed, and Jesus sent his spirit, one of the reasons anyway, according to John Calvin, the secret working of the spirit is to make us feel the love of God for us right now, every day. And according to Paul in Ephesians 3, we can ask for that all the time, the power that comes from God through the Spirit in our inner being in order to make us begin to grasp, grasp, just cling on today, right now, the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ for me, to feel that love that Jesus purchased for me 2,000 years ago, that same love that the Father feels for His Son and Spirit and vice versa. It's mine. I can't mess it up. I can't add to it. I can't lose it. But here's the problem. I've developed a deep habit, an addiction for looking for love in all the wrong places, and that's sin. And with that comes shame and guilt. It's crippling. And truth told, I do get hits of dopamine periodically, like gambling, enough to keep me betting on the lottery, even though the odds are horrible. You know, and by lottery, I mean entering into these sinful things. It's just a deep habit. So to defeat the habit, I need to start a new habit. And as it grows, it competes with the old habits. And here it is, my habit, my new habit should be to ask the Spirit to make me, not help me, make me feel the power of Jesus's love for me again and again and again, until my loneliness begins to be satisfied a little bit. My sense of enoughness begins to be filled a little bit. Then I begin to see God's smiling face more. It's a dopamine hit. It's a new addiction, a good one. I feel the blessing of God for me. I feel is making me right with him, making me a person in good standing, and subconsciously hearing him say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. You're my beloved son or daughter with whom I'm well pleased. That's the blessing that the psalmist is longing for, that the rich young ruler was longing for. Or I can keep trying to clean my hands uh, of my sin, right? Think of Lady Macbeth trying to remove her guilt by washing her hands. Out, damned spot! Uh, So I, I can... Keep on trying, like Lady Macbeth, to make my heart pure by doing things, like washing my hands, or saying prayers, or ending prayers within Jesus' name. All those good things, right? Well, good luck with that. How has that gone for you? How has that gone for the rich young ruler? But looking at the end now, when I begin to have my identity cup, my enoughness cup filled a little, I need filling from those other sources those lesser sources, less. I begin to feel more love from God and for God. Worship and joy comes a little easier. I feel more love for others. I feel mercy for others, right? The, 
the beatitude. I desire to be a peacemaker more, another beatitude. I want to pray more. I pray for others more. Why? Well, God's blessing, Jesus's proclamation of the gospel is not just a thing. It is a divine dynamic that begins to change me. Listen to John Barclay, quote, Paul, we shall see, had an unusual creative and socially radical understanding of the grace of God arising from the gift, Christ. Whereas good gifts were, and still are, normally thought to be distributed best to fitting or worthy recipients, Paul took the Christ gift, the ultimate gift of God to the world, to be given without regard to worth, and in the absence of worth, an unconditioned or incongruous gift that did not match the worth of its recipients, but created it. This is the root of his mission to the Gentiles and his formation of communities that crossed social boundaries and ignored old hierarchies of worth. In fact, it was in the formation and the practices of these communities that the grace of God was evidenced. Moral and social transformation was not an optional extra in Paul's understanding of grace, but its necessary expressions— because the gift of God in Christ brought into question the whole value system of the ancient world and took place in relationships, not just in the heart. Grace, it turns out, is not an idea or a thing, but a radical divine dynamic, close quote. So these people who are infected by the Christ gift, grace, change and turn outward a little bit, and their cups become a little more filled, and they treat people with a little more mercy, a little more care, a little more loving. They just do. It's necessary um, creation of the divine dynamic. So this divine gift, the Christ event, salvation, the making of disciples created with them, us included, a desire to love and be loved, we become right with God, and to a little degree, we begin to feel it. And that made us lean into Jesus more, and that relationship by faith a little bit, and we begin to think more of others. As Keller puts it, as we begin to walk more and more in line with the gospel, we don't start to think less of ourselves, we just think of ourselves less. So for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to continue to raise the bar in the difference between just clean hands and also having a pure heart. So he says, you haven't murdered, but what about anger? right? Acts versus motivation. Well, this is how you should pray because you're praying, but what's your motivation? You're tithing, but you're doing it for reputation. You see, he's going to unpack this for the next number of verses. Um, <clears throat> so to get a clean hand and a pure heart, it takes the Christ event, the coming of his spirit, his effective calling as disciple. And we've, we've seen this in Matthew, uh, Jesus calling the disciples, they drop everything, they come, something was transformed. It's the Christ event. But even then, we don't experience it. We won't experience it this side of heaven. Again, the disciples, they let Jesus down a lot. But it still should be noticeable. Those who get that will see God. All right. Uh, seeing God. Here's my best shot at describing what a pure heart and the seeing the face of God looks like. Imagine a mother with her infant. She holds the child close to her face the child's eyes lock on hers, she smiles, she coos, she giggles, the infant responds, and an attunement takes place, an attuning moment takes place. The child is, in, in, at that moment, is secure, wildly secure, chemically secure, lipne mother, 
in that secure, loving space in front of the mother's face and, and her eyes, or the father's eyes, or a caregiver's eyes. Attachment theorists suggest that subconsciously, the child is asking, right? They can't ask rationally, but subconsciously, their brain is asking, are you there for me? Caregiver, mom, dad. Isn't that the same question that the Jews were asking of God? And I'm asking of God. So in that special attuning space, the child does get an answer. Yes, I am here for you. And it's not a uh, a sentence. It's an experience. It's a feeling. They can trust being in the presence of that person. That person is here for them. Attachment theorists feel that if only 30% of the caregiver-infant interactions are at that level of attunement. Only 30%, that's not 90 or 70 or 50, even 30%, the child will enter his or her next stage of life as a secure child. They'll, They'll be different. They'll be transformed. Their brain will actually wire with that um, security. And it affects them even all the way into their adulthood. There are huge social identity and health issues related to that kind of security. And The mother, the caregiver, the father only has to do it 30% of the time. We're doing a a beta run through a new online program for Christian parents. We call it Good Enough Parent. And good enough is a phrase used by attachment researchers. That's that 30%. Uh, Parents of of infants, uh, zero to two, if you can do this 30% of the time, you will be doing your child a big, 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 big favor. So the program, though, is primarily for parents of teens and tweens. We're trying to teach them what adolescent attunement looks like and feels like. It's a lot of fun. Well, if you want to know more, we're going to publicly roll it out in the summer, we hope. Bill at gospel-app.com. Just send me your name and say, I want to be, I want to know more information about it. All right, back to attunement. One child expert, children expert, says this, attunement is, quote, the process of a parent feeling the child's feelings, absorbing those feelings, and reflecting them back to the baby. So the baby knows he has been seen, heard, and understood. Attunement is more than simply mimicking the child's emotional state. It communicates to the child, I get you. I understand and empathize with what you're feeling. The baby is so in tune with the mom that when she holds, rocks, and cuddles her infant, the heartbeat of her baby synchronizes with her own, close quote. Now think of that with God and and this connection that you can have with God. The Holy Spirit, make me prayer. Holy Spirit, make me have this connection with God where I know, I sense, uh, you know, I know beyond knowing that God gets me and he understands and empathizes and adores me. Wouldn't that be something? That's spiritual formation. Dr. David Arredondo explains the power of caregiving infant attunement. And again, think of our relationship with God spiritually. But here's what he says about caregiver infant attunement. Quote, this mother and this baby are in a process, a form of reciprocal connectedness called attunement. His eyes and her eyes are locked together. Not locked together, but dancing together, really. And in this child's brain, a thousand connections per second are being formed, and this child is learning to read facial expression. This child is learning about the world. He's learning that the world is responsive or not responsive. He's learning that he can be an object of delight and that he can delight others. He's learning what he's worth. He's learning what the world is like. He's learning so much so quickly that we can't even conceive of it. And God does the same thing through his Holy Spirit for even us today. We uh, seasoned adults. So if our 
primary caregiver made us feel safe and secure as infants enough if they were able to respond to our cries enough and accurately interpret our changing physical and emotional needs enough if they were able to attune with us enough that we likely developed a secure attachment style. And experts say that enough is about 30%. But if we experience confusing, frightening, or inconsistent emotional communication, again, thank God, too, sketchy attunement during infancy, if our caregiver was unable to consistently comfort us or respond to our needs enough, touch us enough, we're more than likely to have experienced an insecure attachment. Infants with insecure attachment often grow into adults who have difficulty understanding their own emotions and the feelings of others, limited ability to build or maintain stable relationships. They struggle to emotionally regulate they may subconsciously shy away from intimacy or be too clingy or fearful fearful or anxious in a relationship. And they may trigger. So one who is truly experiencing the purity in heart is the one who miraculously, like that child, can rest in the arms of God, can look up into his loving eyes for a moment, undistracted by all of the things swirling around them, all the scary things all the dehumanizing things, because there, in that moment, they're safe and loved, and they're digging it for a moment in time. They're connecting with God. The side of heaven is a great picture of what abiding looks like, John 15, feels like, the branch resting in the vine. You get it, right? This is a miracle in today's anxious, frightening world. We need the active working of the Spirit in our inner being to begin to do this. It can happen, and I'm going to say more about the dance in a moment. That's why we created it. So they are like people on that hillside who came anxious, avoidant, beat up, hopeless, looking or hoping for the relationship that answers that old brain question, are you there for me? Or to parse that question into two questions, am I worthy of your love, enoughness, and can I count on you, connectedness? This is what we all want. And Jesus seemed to long for connection, not separation. He touches those that the world considers untouchable, unclean, tax collectors, lepers, demoniacs, whores, dead people, bleeding women. He touches them still. They grow in that intimate moment. It's attunement. We ultimately want that with God. Uh, We have it. Our brain tells us that. Our prefrontal cortex tells us that. But we want to experience it more. I do. So on that hillside... The dynamic calling of Jesus made disciples who felt that a little or a lot. And how do we know? Because he, so many of them followed him. This is the same word that was used for the disciples following him. They became disciples. It's extraordinary. It's a miracle. It's a revival. And they came with the same question, God, are you there for me? Am I worthy of your love or, or any love for that matter? And the answer was to some degree before that, no. But they left with a different answer. They felt like they were, all because of Jesus' worth of God's love, that they could count on God. Not perfectly, that's for heaven, but more than they did a day earlier. All right, so to summarize, no one was worthy to come into the favorable presence of God without shame, guilt, or judgment. Well, only one, but he was God too, Jesus. So Jesus came into their presence, God came down and came into their presence came to the top of the hill in their presence and blessed them with righteousness, meaning he made them right with God. And this is the cross ultimately, but he's proclaiming this over them now. He takes on the cost of their unclean hands and impure hearts, and he gives them new hearts that were pure, that were right. Uh, 
that could actually feel love, can, can, could actually experience God's smile. Something brilliant and something new happened on that hillside. So have you felt it recently? No shame. I'm just thinking, has anybody asked you that question recently? Because you can experience it as you are. Holy Spirit, make me feel this. And when you feel it, your pain of separateness can be alleviated a little bit. It can soothe the ache of not being seen, of not being seen as enough. It can tame the fear of insignificance, that existential loneliness. You have you had to experience it once, unless you were so young you don't recall it now. So here's what you do. Ask the Spirit inside of you to make you feel the height and width, the length and depth of the love of Christ for you and for others. And just keep asking and keep asking and keep asking until you do. Uh, if you want help, go to the dance, the-dance.org. That's why we designed it, because this is difficult. We need power to be able to do it. Don't try to do it on your own. It's a small fee, but it's satisfaction guaranteed. So if you go through the two hours online and, and you, you're not jazzed, we'll give you your money back. No questions asked. But the goal is to help you remember the celestial dance, to make you hear the music again. So give it a shot. I'm begging you. I can't wait to hear of your experience. I mean that. Here we are, enviable, are the ones who rest in God's arms like a newborn child. They see his face smiling upon them and know that he is there for them. All right, well, look at peacemakers next time. We'll see you next time on the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Senior. Contact me, bill at gospel-app.com. Pass on the good news of this podcast to other people. Like it, forward it. You can forward it through Facebook or your email address list, your, your Bible study. And we're getting, we're getting into some really good dialogue, so, so take advantage of that, all right? See you next time on the Gospel Rant. Take heart, child of God. The content we feed our minds will eventually show up in our lives. If we feed our minds the lies and confusion of this world, our lives will begin to reflect worldliness. But if we feed our minds the truth of the gospel, our lives will start to reflect the heart and character of Jesus. I'm John Stonge, and each week I host the Dwell on These Things podcast, where we take a deep look at the Word of God and learn what it means to apply it to our lives. We don't skip difficult passages, and we don't gloss over the truth. If you're looking for a show that will put your mind in a better place and help you understand God's Word with more clarity, you can listen to the Dwell on These Things podcast at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.